What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Well, as we dig deeper into the $2.4 trillion stimulus bill that the U.S. Congress passed, we are finding all sorts of interesting provisions. One highlighted by President Trump himself, the idea that there would be $10 billion that would go to the U.S. Postal Service to help support and plug some of the gaps that have emerged in the wake of the coronavirus. However, President Trump saying that unless the Postal Service raises its prices, particularly on last mile delivery packages, it will instruct Secretary uh, Treasury. Secretary Stephen Mnuchin to withhold that $10 billion. Tim O'Brien, who's a senior columnist with Bloomberg Opinion, joining us now. Tim, always wonderful to hear what you have to say about this. How much of a surprise was this to people who saw President Trump pinpoint this specific issue? Um, I don't think it's a surprise that, you know, he wants, he's seeking change at the Postal Service. The Postal Service needs change. Uh, Nor is it a surprise that he is focused in, again, on the pricing the Postal Service charges for packages. However, the way he's focusing on it is incorrect. The package delivery piece of the post office's business is its most robust and profitable. It's mail carrying that's a problem for the post office. I think what was surprising was he was in the Oval Office and he simply said uh, what everyone has suspected has been on his mind for a long time is that he singled out Amazon.com as as one of the reasons he has um, this animosity towards the Postal Service. President Trump has said that the Postal Service loses money on every package it delivers. Is that right? Nope, that's not correct. Again, that's a re- that's the very profitable part of the Postal Service's business and has been, you know, alongside the boom in e-commerce. Uh, the Postal Service plays a really important role for commercial deliverers like FedEx and U.S. Uh, and UPS um, delivering packages through the so-called last mile to people's homes. That's not efficient or really profitable for the commercial carriers to use, so they rely on the post post office for that. And that has been a, a really bright spot in the postal services business over the last. 14 to 15 years or so, mail carrying has really declined. And that's always been the lion's share of the post office's business. And that's where they're really hurting, and that's what they need to fix. So the president's identifying the wrong thing. Tim, I want to switch gears a little bit and move from the Postal Service to just the general $2.4 trillion bailout, in particular, the PPP, the area that was intended to help support small businesses. How good is the oversight of that program, given the fact that we're learning that a good proportion of the money has gone to either publicly traded companies or others who had other means of financing? Uh, It's clearly not good enough at all, Lisa. And this was something I think we talked about a couple weeks ago when the first tranche of money 
launched the first 349 billion um uh, i you know i personally think it's a good idea that we're we're supporting businesses in this crisis but i think it has to be supported in a really efficient and rational way and the problem with that first big tranche of money as we now know is it went to people who had either other resources other companies that had other resources to raise funds uh, or were simply uh, too big to fit any of the definitions that program had for a small business, which was 500 employees or less. Um, I think based on my own back-of-the-envelope math, only about 5% of the country's small businesses got money in that first round. And so now we have a second round that's larger, $380 billion, and there still really isn't a- enough good oversight in place. The General Accountability Office is going to be um, watching some of this. They're a, a you know, very well-regarded bipartisan organization, but they don't report until the end of June at the earliest. And all of the other congressional and White House watchdog organizations aren't up and running yet. I was struck by a story today on the Bloomberg about uh, a study that showed that only 15% of the money went to small businesses in areas that were the hardest hit by the coronavirus. Is your sense that this next tranche of financing that starts uh, getting distributed this week will be more equally distributed? One would hope there's not enough transparency yet to know, and and so that's a great question you're raising, Lisa. And it's and and the and and Bloomberg News is reporting on that is 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 really important. I think the other thing we don't know is PPP is a payroll protection plan. It's meant to help workers get over this hump during this crisis, and we really don't have any auditing arm in place to know if the companies are even actually using it for payroll. And I I have this you know, lingering, journalistic, cynical kind of worry that at the end of the day, we'll never know if it got to the workers. So what should happen here, Tim, from an oversight perspective, real quickly, 20 seconds? Um, I, I think I think it should happen at the federal level in the White House to begin with. I think they need to screen right out of the gate who's getting the money, and there should be really clear criteria for why and how they're getting it and how they're going to use it. Tim O'Brien, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate your thoughts. As always, Tim O'Brien, senior columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. Check out his column uh, today on the Bloomberg on Bloomberg.com. Trump views post office as a way to settle scores. Interesting column, interesting take on that, on a big issue uh, there. You can read all of Tim's work at Bloomberg.com slash opinion or on the terminal at OPINGO for all of Bloomberg uh, Opinion work. Well, and we are now in probably week five or six of this quarantine, more and more of us working from home. The question is, are we more or less productive than we are when we are in our workplace? Uh, Nicholas Bloom, professor of economics at Stanford University, has done a lot of work on this concept. We welcome uh, uh, Professor Bloom. So, Professor, thanks so much for joining us. I know initially your work suggested that working from home was actually, you could be more productive. Is that still the case in the world of the coronavirus? Yes, uh, I looked at you know, a number of studies, and normally working from home is uh, leads to a big increase in productivity. But with coronavirus, we've got four big issues. One, many of us have our kids at home, which is huge distracting. Uh, secondly, we often don't have our own rooms, so a lot of people are sharing you know, living rooms, bedrooms. Thirdly, there's no choice. So when I looked at working from home, we looked at people who chose to work from home. And, uh, you know, many of us have not chosen, would not like to do so. And then finally, um, we also looked at working from home part-time. So 
something like 30% of Americans with a graduate work from home a day a week, but only 2% do full-time. But we're now all forced at home full-time. Uh, I will say, Nick, in your research, uh, recent research published uh, that you, you put out there, you said, working from home with your children is a productivity disaster. My four-year-old <laughs> regularly bursts into the room, hoping to find me in a playful mood, shouting, doo-doo, her nickname for me in the middle of conference <laughs> calls. We've all been there, Nick. And I'm wondering, how much is this simply a parenting issue versus a non-parenting issue uh, or something broader about this idea of being more productive when you're facing face-to-face with coworkers and in an office environment? So parenting is a big issue. My, you know, my four-year-old does burst in. In fact, my, you know, my older kids are learning to play the bagpipes. So I don't know which is worse. Uh, you know, <laughs> even, even, even setting that aside, there's a bigger issue once we go back post-COVID that around one-third of jobs only are suitable to work from home. So there's a study out of Chicago University that looked at jobs. And, you know, for managers... Uh, for the senior people, you know, for journalists, for example, much of this can be done at home, but for large parts of the economy, we can't do that. So for some of us, it's fantastic when our kids are back at school and when we have, you know, space and time. But I don't think it's ever going to be like it was now, which is full time. It turns out the evidence is strongly you need something like three days a week to be in the office to be motivated and creative. And the problem is now we just don't have that either. It's not only kids, it's, you know, uh, no face-to-face interactions. So, Professor, I mean, some people have been suggesting that this is going to accelerate the work from home kind of, um, I guess, migration that's been taking place really over the last 10, 15 years. Do you think that is reasonable to assume? Yes, definitely. So we we went from before COVID from a level of working from home. As it was common one day a week, but it was extremely rare full time. So obviously, we're now all working from home full time to post COVID. But I think we're just back to a higher level. Uh, but not like we are now. So I think it would be very standard. You know, most jobs will probably allow their employees to work from home something like two days. But I doubt many will encourage us to do it full time. And that's going to have a huge impact, even on things like you know, how attractive is it to live in the center of city. You don't have to commute in five days a week. You're only commuting in two or three days. But why not live further out? So I think it's going to be a huge impact. Um, you know, a great example is London after the London Olympics in 2012. They shut the centre of London for three weeks to avoid congestion. And there was a dramatic long-run pickup in working from home because of the success of that experiment. I think COVID's kind of like a bigger example of that. So, Nick, there's this question, and the reason why this is so important to so many people right now, in addition to just what the future holds for people who do have the privilege of being able to work from home, is the fate of commercial real estate going forward. And you've had a lot of business leaders from Morton Stanley uh, CEO to Black BlackRock CEO come out and say that they think one of the bigger consequences of this is that companies will need less real estate. Does this sort of mark the death of commercial real estate, of the sort of big office, given the fact that people will be able to work from home more frequently? Or are those calls getting a little ahead of themselves? No, I think it's a, you know, it's a bleak time for commercial real estate and also actually residential real estate in the center of cities. If we go from you know, working from home, it's very rare for, let's say, two out of five days a week. You can see you probably need 40% less office space. Maybe not quite 40 because you can't perfectly hot desk substantially less and you know that kind of drop in demand is going to be problematic it's not obvious by the way you won't still maintain big offices i just think we need less of them and less space per you know headquarters so that's going to be a big switch if you look at firms that do working from home they don't 
typically operate smaller satellite offices. They just require people to come in less frequently to their main office. Nicholas Bloom, thank you so much for being with us and good luck uh, working from home with the kids and the bagpipes. Nicholas Bloom, professor of economics at Stanford University, joining us from Stanford, California. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. We know this 2Q GD print is going to be ugly. The question is how ugly and how long will it remain at those depressed levels? Welcome, Tom Orlick, Chief Economist for Bloomberg Economics. He joins us on the phone. Tom, thanks so much for joining us. I know Bloomberg Economics is out with some new research. What is your updated and current economic outlook as we await this second quarter GDP print? Um, So it's a pretty bleak outlook, Paul. Um, Globally, we're now looking at a contraction of 4% for the year. That's our base case. Um, If we think back to 2009, the great financial crisis, that was a pretty bad year. The global economy that year only shrank 0.2%. So our base case is actually something substantially more negative. Um, If we look in more detail at the United States, Looking at the um, looking at the first quarter number, well, it kind of depends how much the lockdown hit. It came right at the end of March. We'll see how much it it took off that first quarter print. The second quarter, certainly, we're looking at a very steep contraction. Um, our U.S. team uh, is penciling in a 37 percent annualized drop in the second quarter. I'm struggling to pair these increasingly bleak outlooks with the optimism that we're seeing in markets right now, at least in equity markets. And a lot of people are saying that traders are just looking past the second quarter and even the third quarter and looking into the fourth quarter when we should get a resurgence in economic activity. I'm wondering how much that's your base case, that we're not going to get necessarily a second wave of the coronavirus and we'll get meaningful uh, pickups in growth heading toward uh, September. November, December? Yeah, I think that's a great question, Lisa. Um, And I too see a a disconnect between some fairly bleak or or rather historically bleak um, economic numbers uh, coming down the line um, and uh, and what's going on in the equity market. Um, So our base case is the outbreak comes under control in the second quarter and we see a reasonably rapid pickup in the third quarter as lockdowns ease. Um, now that's our base case, but it comes with some unusually large caveats. Um, the first one is what happens to the virus? Well, it seems like from what happened in China, a lockdown can be successful in essentially permanently bringing it under control, um, but we don't know if that can be replicated around the world, and we don't even really know if it will stick in China. 
Um, so it's entirely possible we could see cases popping back up again in the third and fourth quarter, a lockdown coming back in in the final weeks and months of the year, and even our 4% contraction call for global GDP could turn out to be too pessimistic, too optimistic. Second so, thing, sec- sorry, carry on, Paul. No, go ahead, Tom. I'm sorry. I was, I, the second big risk is, well, we think that the underlying economy is actually okay. And so once you get rid of the virus and, and you get rid of the lockdown, people can come back to work and growth comes back pretty quickly. That's actually also an optimistic assumption. We're seeing 26 million people losing their jobs in the United States, similar impact across other big economies, businesses going bankrupt. It's possible that this is going to be a scarring recession and high unemployment, business bankruptcies, perhaps even some bank failures are going to mean that the recovery in the third and fourth quarter and into 2021 just isn't that robust. So, Tom, just quickly, how bad do you think this unemployment rate is going to be? And then I guess. How permanent, I guess you were kind of touching on that a little bit, how permanent do you feel like it will be? Are we at a higher level of just underlying unemployment going forward? So we think that the unemployment rate in the second quarter is going to push close to 20%. Um, That's an extraordinarily high level. Back in the great financial crisis, it got to 10%. So we're looking at a really, really high level of unemployment. Um, The question for the longer term is, well, have businesses just said, okay, take a break, we'll, we'll call you in three months. And then when the lockdown is over, people can basically get back to work and it's business as usual. Or are we looking at a more damaging break in the labor market? If we see people being furloughed and then those furloughs turning into permanent unemployment, then that's going to be a much more serious drag on output. And we'd be looking at a creeping recovery in the second half and into 2021. Tom Orlick, thank you so much for being with us. Tom Orlick, Chief Economist for Bloomberg Economics, joining us from Washington, D.C. In five weeks, the U.S. labor market erased what took more than a decade to build, more than 26 million jobs lost as the coronavirus wreaked havoc across the United States. We're expecting millions more in the filing, the initial jobless filings come Thursday. A question about how quickly these jobs will return and what businesses could and should and would be doing to bring these people back online as we get some signs that the virus is subsiding. James Sinclair on the front lines of all of this, Chief Executive Officer of Enterprise Alumni based in Los Angeles. James, you talk with employers. How much are they planning for the reset, the post-coronavirus rejiggering of the economy as they try to get a greater proportion of their employees back online? Good morning, Lisa. Thanks for having me. Uh, You're absolutely right. So we work with some of the largest companies in the world, and we're seeing this massive influx of new customers across retail and tourism travel. And so we do have a good pulse of what's next and what's needed to restart. And we are seeing a lot of organizations leveraging enterprise alumni to start their rehiring plan. This concept of who's available, um, not only people who used to work for them just before the crisis, but also historically, and their ability to be able to ramp up very quickly by using alumni or former employees who used to work for the organization. So, James, just based upon kind of what you're hearing from some of the companies that you talk to, how quickly do you think this restart uh, will occur? Will it be a gradual type of thing or are these companies chomping at the bit? So I think 
there are two conversations. Number one, it's how do we manage the community today? All of these people that we furloughed, all these people that we need to communicate with and place into a central resource to have that conversation. But I think people are chomping at the bit is almost an understatement. I think we're all chomping at the bit. And the question is, what does that recovery look like? And how are they going to potentially make up for lost time? Uh, but how are they going to staff really quickly because they can't afford a three to four week productivity cycle? They need people that are going to hit the ground running. Uh, and so to, the, to a lot of customers we're speaking to, that tends to be the biggest priority now, that when we get the go-ahead or, or the green light, how can we scale up uh, very, very rapidly? James, we're talking about the jobs market in the United States as though it were a monolith, and obviously it's not. And different industries have gotten hit harder than others. I know that your company makes software that are used, that's used by a variety of different companies and industries, Nestle, P&G, Marriott, HSBC, BC. I'm wondering how specific will the restart be to companies that are better positioned to weather this? In other words, could we see everyone get back online yet the hotels remain with furloughed uh, employees for a lot longer? I think from what we're seeing from the staffing plans that organizations are, are leveraging in our, in our application is that it is going to be gradual, that even though there's going to be a green light and a mass rehire, it is going to be industry specific. You take the airlines overnight, they're not suddenly going to have 90, 95% uh, fill rates on their planes, same as occupancy for hotels, same as restaurants. Just because the market's reopening, it doesn't mean everyone's going to feel comfortable suddenly going to a sports game, going to a conference or, or jumping on a plane. So, so they are expecting that when they do reopen, they're going to reopen as smaller organizations. So, James, how about some small business owners? We've seen you know, a lot of pain there on Main Street, USA. Any sense of how they are trying to manage through this, how they plan on reopening once they do get that green light? I think for smaller and medium-sized businesses across U.S., this is really going to be leveraging their community, leveraging all the goodwill they've built over the number of years. You know, we're hoping that as many businesses as possible will survive post this. But I think the, the recovery is going to be really, again, leveraging this community. So, again, whether you're a small business or a large, cust a large customer of ours, you're still thinking about that network and all the people that used to work for you, that you've had a relationship with, because also right now they become your brand advocates. We see a lot of customers right now recognizing that their ad spend is so small. So how can we leverage all of our former employees to push our messaging, uh, push our programming, and kind of give us the reach that we would normally have to pay for? James, how much goodwill, though, has been lost with some of these employees who have lost their jobs? So I, I think this becomes company to company where this is an opportunity to really see the type of organization uh, for what they are, their culture and their values. We have uh, one re retail company that has whisked up a platform uh, for enterprise alumni, for all of their uh, former employees, for all of those furloughed. And one of the things they're doing is every week the CEO is doing a town hall, talking to them about what's happening in the market, what they can expect, how they might upskill. We have another customer uh, in, in tourism who is offering all of their furloughed employees access to an MBA program, access to learning, access to skills. So I think you're seeing a lot of companies using this opportunity to A, be great employers and ensure they're offering those furloughed employees access to resources to help them upskill and, and be better post-crisis, but also be great communicators because none of us really know, you know what that date is for, for rebound. James and Claire, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate you talking to us about how when the governments and 
corporations reopen, how will they staff themselves? James Sinclair, CEO of Enterprise Alumni based in Los Angeles. So Lisa, that's going to be very interesting. I'm really focused on kind of these small and mid-sized businesses. You know, you, you hope that they can uh, survive this and you hope some of this fiscal stimulus actually gets to them uh, to help them bridge the gap. And then, uh, you know, when they do get the green light, you know, how many of them will be able to come back? That's going to be really key. It's such a complicated process, I got to say, and to sort of predict how many employees you may need, knowing that the people you don't hire won't be able to go out and spend and accelerate the economy. Yeah. It bends yeah, your mind. Be, yeah, <laughs> it, it really does. It really does. And uh, we've never, this economy obviously has never had to do anything like this. I would argue even with the, uh, the Great Depression. So we'll have to see how this plays out. But key is going to be fiscal stimulus. And we're going to get some more news on that this week. This is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.